0: Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
1: Today, World Footprints pays tribute to our nation's veterans and their families. We commemorate the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination, and we introduce a World War II pilot who continued to bomb Germany after the war with candy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and along with my husband, Ian, we're paying tribute to our nation's heroes and the 35th President of the United States.
0: Thanks, dear. A new documentary, Gold Star Children, showcases the path to emotional recovery by child survivors of war casualties. Written and directed by Mitty Mirror. A Gold Star Child Herself, the film offers a first-person narrative told through the eyes of a nine-year-old girl who lost her father in the Iraq War and the adult children survivors of the Vietnam War. Gold Star Children, airing on the Pentagon Channel, draws attention to military families and inspires non-military Americans to understand and support families left behind by our fallen warriors.
2: And so it was from there that when I had the opportunity to mentor today's children, that I began to wonder, you know, will these kids ever want to go to the place their father was killed?
0: On November 22nd, the nation will remember and commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of America's 35th president, John F. Kennedy. Jeff Nielsen is the director of archives for the Saturday Evening Post, and he'll join us to share some historical perspectives on the incident that left an indelible mark on America as the Post opens its vault to honor America's 35th president as his contemporaries knew him.
3: He was considered to be, he was popular, he was, um, Uh, He was considered to be, even by some, he was considered to be lucky. He was considered to be skilled, and he had won some major advantages in the Cold
1: War. Colonel Gail Halverson is a retired career officer and command pilot in the United States Air Force. After World War II, Colonel Halverson organized Operation Little Vittles, which became a movement and earned him recognition as the Candy Bomber and a nickname among German children as Uncle Wiggly Wings. The
4: Wiggly Wings came because I promised them I'd come back the next day when I came in to land and drop enough chocolate and gum for all of them to share it. And they'd say, how do we know what airplane it got to know the airplane. I said, I'll wiggle the wings when I come over the air- airport before I land. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
0: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com.
1: A new hour-long documentary film, Gold Star Children, Two Generations Sharing Loss and Healing, takes an intimate look at American children who have lost a parent to war across two generations. The film focuses on the sharing, loss, and mentoring of the Iraq-Afghanistan generation by the Vietnam generation Gold Star Children and how they heal together. We're pleased to introduce Gold Star Children's filmmaker and founder of the Gold Star Children Foundation, Mitty Mirror, who herself lost her father in Vietnam in 1970, just one day after she was born. Mittie, welcome to World Footprints.
2: Thank you, Tanya. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Now, the term Gold Star Children is based on the pin presented by the military uh, to families of fallen troops at military funerals. Do you know anything about the history of this tradition?
2: Yes. Actually, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with the current president of Gold Star Wives just yesterday, and we were talking about how Gold Star Mothers had come about early on, um, and then Gold Star Wives was incorporated around the time of World War II. But the banner um, was implemented, if if you hang a banner in your window with a blue star, it's an active duty um, current military uh, person that you're referring to and supporting. And if that person active duty dies on the battlefield or otherwise active duty, then it becomes a gold star. And Mm. so that's the difference.
1: Mm. Now, what inspired you to produce this documentary about this particular subject matter?
2: Well, this is definitely close to my heart, as you pointed out. Um, So my father was a Marine. He was an advisor um, in Vietnam. And in 1970, he was actually on his second tour of duty, and he was killed in action. Well, like many people, there's an estimated 20,000 American children, now adult children, who lost a parent to the Vietnam War. Well, if you consider at that time, there were no support groups in place to speak of for the entire family, certainly no Internet access, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. no chicken soup for the military widow uh, book, you know, around. Um, So, and at that time, too, for many reasons, people didn't talk about their service in the Vietnam War, and so therefore the widows, once they moved off base, um, they didn't really have a forum to talk about it with their children. And so the common thread that I've learned through doing this research through Gold Star Children is that so many people were like us in the fact that we just simply didn't talk about it. Um, And at that time, the young widows did the best they could to carry on with family, oftentimes getting remarried, you know, in my mother's case, twice. (laughs) Um, I have an older sister, and it wasn't until, I would say, I was twenty. Mm-hmm. And I was in D.C., and my background is broadcast journalism. And there were two things that introduced me to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it's an odd thing when you don't talk about something for a lifetime um, up to the age of 25. I used to laugh that I must have been hatched because nobody... <laughs> would talk about it. and You know, it was like this dirty little secret, Um, and yet he was a Naval Academy graduate of 1964. He did all these fabulous things I would later understand, Um, and nobody was trying to hurt us. It was simply the culture. Yeah. Uh, So I saw the wall for the first time while doing a news story, and I was standing there trying to do my little stand-up, and I had the names... You know, it, which is to see that for the first time is quite something.
1: To see it, and I live here, and every time I have friends in town, I just had two friends uh, visiting from France, and one for the first time in this to this area, and so I took them to the Vietnam Wall, and each and every time for me, it's it's humbling. I feel some emotional turmoil. You know, I go on a emotional roller coaster ride because it's to look at. All of the names on that vast wall, it's heartbreaking each and every time. And it's true. And and
2: that, in a lot of ways, was kind of like the catalyst for wanting to know more. And so the first time I really wrestled with this to the ground was in Vietnam because I was working as a news reporter in New Orleans. My mom decided to go back to get her doctorate in psychology to research Widows of War, and at that time in the 90s, it was, this was in 1997. The only research on widows she could find was from Israel. Isn't that interesting? Now, thankfully, it's everywhere. Um, but we go there and we interviewed, through a translator, um, widows in Vietnam. And the story was not about the politics of the war. It was about the journey of the grief and how did they deal with it. Did they talk with their families about it? Uh, and so that was kind of an eye. And we went to the, the death side of where my father's uh, helicopter had gone down. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really an eye-opening experience. And so it was from there that when I had the opportunity to mentor today's children that I began to wonder, you know, will these kids ever want to go to the place their father was killed? You know, it's a different environment. It's completely different.
1: You know, I I think there's a misperception, uh, Minnie, that, you know, Grief is a fallacy when you're grieving somebody that you may not remember, and in your case, you don't remember your father. You were only a day old when he passed. Um, But that's incredibly inaccurate, and I... My husband lost his father when he was two years old uh, in a car accident, and I never really understood his loss until I experienced it myself when I lost my dad last year. But I had a lifetime of memories with my father, and I think part of the grief, or would you agree that part of the grief is the loss of uh, the opportunity to build memories with, with your father?
2: Oh, absolutely. And and that grief is different for every family member, and I'm so sorry for yours and your husband's loss.
1: Thank you. For,
2: for the widow, it's that loss of, you know, the family life, the dreams ahead. And for the child, it's a bit of loss of identity, if especially if it goes underground and nobody will talk about it. So so we have come so far. So the point of all of this is to say that the goal is to empower these kids, and and it's being done. So we can all feel good about the fact that there are lessons learned, and that you know, different organizations are stepping up to the plate mm-hmm. to make this happen. And, mm-hmm. and that's really what I wanted to capture in comparing this cross generational story.
1: Was was creating this story of making this film part of um, your journey? towards healing. Was this healing for you? Was it meant to be healing for you or did you, did that just happen as you continued the filming process?
2: Right. This was, you know, as we do sometimes in journalism, this was not about me. Right. (laughs) You know, and uh, like a, a wise friend who's in the film said, Mitty, how many people do you have to interview before you realize that common thread? I said, oh gosh, you're so right. I see the common thread. But it 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 turned out to be very healing for me, but I thought that after our journey in Vietnam and that aired nationally, and it was just so amazing for our family to finally talk about it. I thought that really what I was doing here was really trying to pass on for another generation.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: So I interviewed over a hundred widows, widowers, children of two different generations of war, and it was very interesting to begin to see the commonality of it all, from the seven-year-old who's talking about their real-time experience of after that knock on the door, to the... 40-something-year-old who has a really hard time speaking about it because I can't tell you how many people who lost a parent in Vietnam who, after 9-11, Iraq and Afghanistan, went to these great organizations like TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, which, by the way, was a game-changer because it brought in the entire family to be able to talk about this. So they would mentor these children, and yet they had never dealt with the war-death of their own parent because it wasn't in place. So they were all there saying, this isn't about me, kind of the same thing I was doing. I'm, I'm just there to help today's children. But what happens is I think grief goes underground, and mm-hmm. you're going to deal with it one way or another. So their interviews were mirroring the children's, and yet they were saying, I want these kids to have a voice today so they don't have to go through that wondering questioning that I did for 20 years they can deal with it right now. So it was just this interesting um, comparison, mm-hmm. and yet it was just so similar.
1: Talk about some of the stories that you uncovered uh, during your filming process. Uh, is there a story or two that provided you uh, exceptional you know, inspiration or encouragement moving forward?
2: Yeah, i Say the little girl in this film. Her name is Sierra Becker, and her mother, Crystal Becker, is just quite something. We all say you are the token mother for your generation. I mean, we just love how she has been able to communicate with both of her girls about this journey. Their father was killed in Iraq in 2007. Um, they immediately got involved with TAPS, and this child, Sierra, the oldest daughter. At age seven, she started sharing openly with other children, Hmm. um, because that's what they teach the kids to do. So as I interviewed them, and I've known them now for many years, um, it's just I'm so inspired by the fact that Sierra has taken her life lessons, and she's already trying to figure out what she can do to help the next child. Uh, That's quite significant when when you consider that Afghanistan lasted longer than the Vietnam War. Um, And you realize that the children from Iraq and Afghanistan early on are already taking the torch, and they're going to help tomorrow's generation. Mm -hmm. So it was in those stories when you realize these kids are so brave, because it's devastating to see someone come up, knock on the door, and these kids are informed, you know, many of these military kids, and they know, you know, they know what that means. Um, And that's just... You know, it, it's just a nightmare, but the story is of hope and resilience, and they are stronger because of the fact that we're not ignoring it. We're talking about it. And that's something that the generation before wasn't able to do.
1: You know, it sounds like your film not only has, uh, is applicable to military families, but non military families uh, as well, and like myself, who you know, lost my father to to cancer. I think the, I would guess that there are, uh, that you share kind of grief recovery steps in in some ways with with your film. Is that inaccurate?
2: Yeah, I, I would say there was, you know, this war also, as we know, there are so many suicides, military suicides, on the vietnam war that there were a lot of suicides and suicides in the aftermath i think it wasn't I-, I know it wasn't documented in the way that it is today um there was one case of you know just a wonderful family the gallagher family and a little girl uh well she was 13 years old at the time um i interviewed her about her father and her father had returned from iraq and um you know unfortunately with many things um Uh, had committed suicide. Well, this story is told over and over again by several, you know, several Gold Star military children. Um, But that struck me because, and how could it not, but what struck me about that was not just the all-out sadness that such a thing could occur, but the strength of this family. I mean, they started writing letters. They reach out to other families who are going through the same thing again, there is now a forum in place. It's almost as if once the families are ready, you know, there's an entree now into how can you help those who might walk the same path. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep going back to TAPS because TAPS created this kind of group where, you know, and there are so many now, thankfully, but, but TAPS truly was a game changer in that way. Um, so my inspiration was just over and over again. I couldn't believe the maturity of these kids and teenagers who were not only grappling with their real-time loss in a very public way, because when someone dies on a battlefield or dies active duty, it is everyone's responsibility. So therefore, that child is everyone's responsibility. But to answer your question about the different stages of grief, yes, I think there's, whether that's cancer or a car accident, like your husband's um, parent, I I feel like, yes, there's the shock of the grief, and then I think that given the chance and given the opportunity to talk through that, part of the healing process is feeling like you can validate your own experience by helping someone else. There is so much healing in that, um, and I, I didn't set out to do that for myself, but that's actually what happened. <laughs> it
1: just evolved. <laughs> yeah, it's,
2: it's evolved. It's evolved, and it's not a story you just touch and walk away from. Yes. You, it's just one ripple after another, and you realize this whole community, uh, they lean on each other, and, and that's, that's what we can all look to and say we feel really good about. This is a great thing that's happening in America. Yes, it's very sad that these things are being dealt with, but very good that we've turned a corner in a good way for those who are enduring this loss.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad to know uh, about the presence of, of TAPs. And, you know, one of my questions, which you've already answered, was, you know, considering the recent death benefit debacle, you know, I was wondering what other critical services are available, and, uh, and you've touched on on that, but you said there are also other services um, in addition to TAPs that are available to military families.
2: Well, I, I need to be clear that, for instance, TAPS is a not-for-profit, and that was founded by a woman, Bonnie Carroll, who's actually a military widow herself and uh. served National Guard. Um, so that was in the 90s when she um, founded TAPS. So it was in place in time for these families as, you know, the conflicts would um, continue from 9-11 on. Mm-hmm. But there are other nonprofits Snowball Express, where they take the kids um, around Christmas, and they, you know, do fun things for them. Um, General Casey, who's in the film, um, former Chief of Staff of the Army, he had a program, um, SOS, Survivor Outreach Services. Um, I think uh, many branches of the military now have services to try and help these families connect. Okay. Um, but I would say that largely this nonprofit, TAPS, is still one of the main, um, the main ones mm-hmm. for families.
1: Well, I'm, I'm happy, you know, that your film is going to air on the Pentagon Channel on uh, Veterans Day. But I'm wondering how will it be available to the public uh, beyond Veterans Day? How will the public be able to enjoy this film?
2: So thank you for asking that. (laughs) So our website is goldstarchildren.org, and this is a not-for-profit endeavor. And I think for something like $5.99 a download, you can go to the site and download the film starting Veterans Day. It is our hope that the film will be available online for the next five years. Um, Other digital distribution include iTunes, Amazon, Um, Hulu, like a whole host of them. Um, So there are many ways. Um, And if you go to this website, goldstarchildren.org, you can add your email to our protected email list and we can continue to give you updates. Um, And it's also screening at film festivals across the country right now.
1: Right. Right, wonderful. Well, Minnie, thank you so much. Thank you for your service and uh, the service of this this film. I think it's uh, it's critical that um, many people view this, and really find ways to to contribute as well to the healing process and because as you mentioned you know it takes a village to to work through through grief and i think that's what you've started creating with gold star children so thank you so much i'd love to have you back on world footprints in the near future to talk more about your foundation as well
2: thank you tanya i i would love to come back and tell you about the progress with gold star children
0: After the break, we'll go into the vault of the Saturday Evening Post with Archives director Jeff Nielsen as the post pays tribute to America's 35th president.
3: He was considered to be, he was popular, he was, um, uh, he was considered to be, even by some, he was considered to be lucky, he was considered to be skilled, and he had won some major
0: advantages in the Cold War. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Johannes
2: from Victoria, Kharteng in South Africa. I love listening to you and I want you to support Ian Antonia at World
1: Footprint Radio. It is exciting. Set sail on the elegant glass-enclosed Odyssey for the ultimate D.C. dining experience, featuring delectable three-course menus, live band entertainment, and monumental views. Cruising year-round from Washington, D.C., the Odyssey offers the best venue for special occasions. Go to odysseycruises.com to reserve today. That's odysseycruises.com.
0: Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face to face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit WorldFootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to Begin your next adventure today. I am Marlon Joseph from the St. Vincent and the Grenadines Tourism Authority. We had a wonderful time with Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick of World Footprints, and we are encouraging, well, inviting you to come down to St. Vincent and the Grenadines and see exactly what we have to offer. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. On November 22nd, the nation will remember and commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of America's 35th president, John F. Kennedy. The shot that took his life in Dallas was heard and felt around the world, and the tragedy remains one of the most memorable events in American history. Jeff Nielsen is a historian for the Saturday Evening Post. He joins us to share some historical perspectives as the Post opens its vault to pay honor to our 35th president as his contemporaries knew him. Jeff, welcome to World Footprints.
3: Hi, glad to be here.
1: Now, what do you remember about JFK's assassination? I don't know if you're old enough to lived the the, the, the the energy of the nation, uh, or if you've heard about it or lived it vicariously in later years.
3: Well, thanks for the compliment, but you no, know, I am definitely old enough. In fact, I was delivering newspapers on that day. I have found that the people, the baby boomers who were around and aware on, in 1963, um when you ask them, do you remember where what you were doing, not only do they remember, but they must tell you. Everybody remembers that one day. They have such a clear, bright memory of that day out of all the days of their childhood because it was that dramatic in, in their lifetime.
1: What, what was the public perception of JFK, however, before the assassination, and why does that event resonate and, and raise... A range of emotions with the public today?
3: I think it's because um, Kennedy was unlike other presidents. He certainly was unlike Eisenhower, and his successor, Lyndon Johnson, was definitely not like him. Um, Kennedy had that uh, sense of um, that sense of patrician polish he had this uh... he exuded the sense that he really deserved to be um, president he, he looked comfortable with it he was relaxed he was smart he was funny he was very poised and if you want to get a good sense of how different he was consider his main opponent in the nineteen sixty election richard nixon who was anything but poised at the time People looked at Kennedy, and they thought, we had this smart, sophisticated, good-looking president who's young. He's the youngest president ever elected to uh, the presidency. And um, he is, uh, other than Theodore Roosevelt, I have to add that. Mm-hmm. But people looked to him as um, a big break, uh, somebody who was sophisticated and really knew what was going on. And they really were in the mood for a big change in, um, in, in the way the country was run and in global politics, and that's what uh, Kennedy was promising.
1: So how did this tragedy shape America going forward?
3: Well, as I, as I see so many people talking about conspiracy theories, I have the feeling that we haven't really let go of that uh, that event, it is still somewhat in, it, it's, it's unresolved. Um, it hasn't really passed into history because people are still debating it. And I think you have to be a rather extraordinary person for people to still mull over the details of your death 50 mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, um, and I, I it, probably not a fair comparison but if richard nixon had won the election in 1960 if it was he who had been assassinated i don't think that we would have the same fascination with um with his death because the you know the lively charisma of kennedy was just seemed so unempathetical to this sorry um uh, miserable death that he incurred, and I think that 's part of the uh, continuing fascination.
1: people are still debating well they 're still debating his death in the media, and i 'm curious how the media reacted to his death then and how they 're beginning to treat uh, the fiftieth anniversary now
3: well, one of the reasons we did this um, piece that were all the pieces that we 're putting up on the web um, that call on the old post articles. Is trying to restore the sense of who he was and how he was regarded at the time. You know, we have fifty years of uh, retrospection that is focused on the assassination and Kennedy's personal life and his many infidelities. And with that view, it's hard to recall that at the time he was considered to be—he was popular. He was—he um, uh, was considered to be even by some. He was considered to be lucky. He was considered to be skilled, and he had won some major advantages in the Cold War. And people were looking forward to the coming election. They figured he would be running against Barry Goldwater. And nobody really thought that Goldwater had a chance against him. Kennedy just had too much popularity. It had dipped recently because he had proposed a, a civil rights amendment and the Southern-dominated congress just would not let anything go through in fact fifty years ago there was pretty much um, a shutdown of legislation pretty much as we've seen recently mm-hmm. because there was just um, a refusal to allow this bill to come through congress that would uh, enforce voting rights for blacks in the south
1: you know I- i'm curious In thinking about this tragedy, younger generations, um, my generation, really we've never experienced the loss of our national leader. We have experienced other tragedies like the terrorist attacks on 9-11. In in terms of national reaction, are there any similarities between the two events?
3: In 9-11, there was the possibility that you could do something about it. Many people uh, enlisted from the armed forces, and all of us really took part in a way because the security um, restrictions that started up affected all of us. We all had to cooperate with the, um, uh, the Security Administration and the Homeland Security. So every one of us had to participate and cooperate in the wake of that. But in the days following Kennedy's assassination, People just looked at their TV set and they relied on the media who seemed just as stunned as they did. And there's was that a sense of sorrow and tragedy that I don't know that we would still have. Maybe we've seen too, too many tragedies. But there was really nothing for people to do except watch television and try and stay informed. And then uh, the assassin of Kennedy is assassinated and they're, they're dumbstruck yet again. So... um There was a sense of paralysis, I think, in the country that there wasn't in uh, 9-11 when somebody had to respond because there was a great effort that was needed um, to save uh, the people they could in New York.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the Saturday Evening Post is releasing a special edition that's dedicated to the 50th anniversary of the assassination. Are there any new snippets or quotes from public officials that will be included in this issue that wasn't included? No, ago?
3: actually, this, the, 1960, the December 14th, 1963 issue that we are uh, reprinting is exactly the same as it was 50 years ago including every advertisement, the short stories, the other articles, because we thought it important to show the tributes paid to Kennedy as they were surrounded by other material in the Post. I mean, the country was still going on. Um, It wasn't the the end of the world, and there were other interests, and the Post was still reflecting some of the other stories that uh, they found interesting at the time. So this gives you a sense of not only just of the time, but the rest of the country, and maybe a small glimpse into what was on the minds of Americans in 1963.
1: So is there, as a post-historian, is there anything that you uncovered, you found in the archival materials that actually surprised you?
3: There are several things that I've found in the articles. Uh, One of them was the uh, comment by uh, Stuart Alsop, who was the political reporter, and the comment he said after the Cuban Missile Crisis and after the Bay of Pigs, he said many people think that Kennedy is so lucky he can never do anything wrong. This is remarkable to me. He's just gone through the catastrophe of the Bay of the Pigs invasion, which was a fiasco. And he is just um, gone through um, a showdown with the Russians that almost resulted in a nuclear war, and yet his popularity is rising both times and he 's considered to be lucky now we don 't think of him that way in after fifty years of dissection, but that 's surprising mm-hmm. to see that perspective
1: I was actually surprised to learn that Jacqueline Kennedy did not cry at all either. Before or during or after uh, his funeral.
3: Yeah, it is remarkable. And she was a remarkable woman. Uh, I think everybody was astonished at her reactions.
1: Very, we very stoic. I mean, that could have been her cultural upbringing in the South where women, particularly, were told that you, you must be happy all the time or it's wrong to be uh, sad. That, that could have been it. Too, but I, I was shocked to uh, to read that in your press release.
3: It also the fascinating thing is that one of her first actions was to telephone the widow of the policeman who Lee Harvey Oswald shot after he killed Kennedy. Her, her thought was that poor woman, what she must be going through. And here's a woman who's already, you know, lost her husband, thinking you know, considerately about this woman and calling her to her after the loss of um, Officer Tippett.
1: Mm. What a wonderful woman, and, and it's certainly another loss for uh, for this country. I'm, I'm wondering um, what types of commemorations will be going on uh, throughout the country? I'm sure the Kennedy Library is doing something. Um, your publication certainly is uh, is doing a wonderful thing, kind of allowing people to, back then, to relive um, that history, but for younger people to learn about it. Are, are there other things that you know about that are happening uh, to commemorate the 50th anniversary?
3: Well, I, I know that there's um, there will probably be a lot of visitors going to the uh, Dallas Museum, uh, which is uh, up on the sixth floor of the Book Depository uh, building, which is where Lee Harvey Oswald was when the motorcade came through on November 22nd, 1963, Um, that is quite a popular attraction, and there's usually a a stream of people going in and out of that building. There is a Kennedy Memorial that was built uh, about two blocks away from the site that I think left people feeling empty. In fact, it is sort of a, uh, a, a large concrete cube with two passages going in and out and not much else. Um, I think people thought there should be something more to this, and so they they built the um, uh, museum in that book depository building, and I know that that's a big attraction in Dallas. The JFK uh, Library and Museum in Boston is incredible, and I think really gives you a sense of... um, the the spirit of Kennedy, as certainly as the Kennedy family and his followers would like him to be recalled, it's um, it has a great uh, display of memorabilia, but also has um, scenes that uh, that recall his early rise into politics as well as his presidency. And um, surprisingly, um, a room that is the recreation of his brother Bobby's uh, mm-hmm. office as Attorney General, which was surprising.
1: Mm. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I'd love to have you back, especially now that I know you're a, a fellow Michigan State Spartan. You're always <laughs> welcome to come back and share more of American history and what the Post, uh, Saturday Evening Post, is doing to uh, commemorate, you know, some of our milestone events. And, and I'd certainly like to talk to you about the changes taking place in our industry, especially print media and you know which begs the question the last question i want to ask you is um will this particular issue or is the saturday evening post available uh online as well as in print and will people be able to enjoy the um 50th anniversary edition of uh, jfk's assassination online and in print
3: well we do have the print version that you can order on on the website If you go to SaturdayEveningPost.com, you can see the contents of our current issue, and you can order a copy of uh, the commemorative issue. We also have a page at SaturdayEveningPost.com slash JFK, which includes several new pieces that we've written based on post articles and um, the imagery and the photography Uh, from that time that gives a sense of what it was like to uh, what people saw in 1963 uh, the popular mood at the time and also contemporary views of Kennedy Uh, and we've also reprinted in their entirety several articles that appeared in the Post at the time
1: Okay, wonderful. Well, Jeff Nielsen is a historian for the Saturday Evening Post Thank you so much for joining us today
0: Well, thank you when we return, we'll introduce you to the man best known as Uncle Wiggly Wings, Colonel Gail Halverson.
1: The Wiggly Wings came
4: because I promised them I'd come back the next day when I came in to land and drop enough chocolate and gum for all of them to share it. And they say, how do we know what airplane it got to know the airplane. I said, I'll wiggle the wings when I come over the air- airport before I land.
0: Next, as World Footprints continues.
4: Hi. My name's Catherine, from France, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Dear Mom and Dad, Well, the Army has finally seen fit to give me some time off, so I'm writing to tell you that I'm doing fine over here. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO
3: depends on the generosity of the American people. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org, the USO, until everyone comes
0: home. Did you know that World Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more, make worldfootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and
4: services. Bonjour, je m'appelle Nico, je suis français et j'adore écouter World Footprints. Hello, I'm Nico, I'm French, and I love to listen to World Footprints.
0: You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
1: Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And we are so pleased to welcome back to our show someone that we're very, very fond of. Retired Colonel Gail Halverson, a former American pilot of C-47S and C-54S planes during the Berlin Airlift, also known as Operation Vittles, which took place between 1948 and 49. Colonel Halverson is also known as Uncle Wiggly Wings, and he's most famous for being the original candy bomber during that period colonel Halverson welcome back uh, it's great to be back my friend
4: thank you thank
1: you <laughs> happy
4: to have you colonel
1: absolutely and 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 thank you you know colonel for, for for your service and i just love your story so much you know you were known as the original candy bomber for dropping candy to the children of berlin during the berlin airlift how did you get the name uncle wiggly wings
4: well, I met uh, a bunch of kids at the fence at Tempelhof in Berlin, and uh, West Berlin, and for, I was with them for an hour, and not one of those 30 kids put out their hand during that time or about the time I was ready to leave them, and begged for chocolate. And when I realized that, that they didn't have really all they wanted to eat, and they'd never had chocolate for months, and not one of 30 kids would lower themselves to be a beggar for something so extravagant as chocolate when they're so grateful for flour to be free. And kids 8 to 14 had that kind of restraint. Because mm. when I could, uh, meet the other kids in other countries during the war and after, uniform, they'd chase you, even though they had some, for chocolate from Americans. These kids had none, and they're so grateful they wouldn't ask for more. And that's what got me started. They said, I said, well... I only had two sticks of gum for 30 kids, and they said, Hey, look, we don't need anything else. Don't worry about us. Someday we'll have our freedom, but if we lose it, we'll never get it back. They gave me a real lesson about freedom. The Wiggly Wings came because I promised them I'd come back the next day when I came into land and drop enough chocolate and gum for all of them to share it. And They'd say, How do we know what airplane it is? got to know the airplane. I said, I'll wiggle the wings when I come over to the air- airport before I land. That's where Wiggly Wings came from.
1: (laughs) And were you surprised that that you were actually able to convince your superiors to sign off on this idea? I mean, it was kind of an impromptu um, promise to these kids. How did you get your superiors to buy in? It
4: was worse than that. I didn't have permission. I knew I was going to get in trouble (laughs) if they caught me. So I tried to keep it a secret. But after three drops... The kids were so excited, the first and I kept dropping it for each week when they got a ration. They only could get a ration once a week. And the third week, I almost hit a German newspaper a guy in the head with a candy bar. He'd heard about it and got out there, put it in the newspaper. And my colonel saw it after the general. The general called him up, says, What are you doing dropping parachutes over Berlin there, Colonel Hahn? on says, My boss, We're not dropping parachutes, General. General Tunner said, better find out, Han, what's going on in your outfit, and hung up. So I got in <laughs> trouble. He called me in and said, what you doing? And then uh, I told him, well, I didn't think I had time to get permission. I told him I'd do it the next day. So I I tried to keep it a secret. I wasn't asking him. But then the general of thought it was a good idea, and my boss forgave me for sandbagging him. <laughs> and, uh, so then it went crazy from then on.
5: He dropped now, over. Uh... Go ahead. Now, uh, Colonel, clearly there were a lot of logistical things that had to take place from uh, getting those parachutes on uh, all of the candy to, to the acquisition of the candy. How did that all come about, even though you had to kind of keep this mission somewhat secretive?
4: Well, after, after we uh, got caught by uh, the American Confectioners Association the States, said, we'll give you all you can drop. All the candy makers, all the chocolate makers. Uh-huh. We couldn't, didn't have time to hear questions a good one. We didn't have time to pilot all parachutes when it went, went a large scale. So 22 schools in Chicopee, Massachusetts, got an old fire station that was abandoned when they built a new one, set up a headquarters there, tied up 800 and some pounds, about 850 pounds of candy on parachutes, put it over to Westover Air Force Base, Send to us in cardboard boxes, and all my buddies would drop it all over the city. We quit dropping over near the temple off because we're afraid the kids getting hurt, big crowd. So we dropped it all, dropped over 20 tons in 14 months Uh. from the sky, and and delivered about 6,000 pounds of chocolate bars Christmas Eve in 1940 on the ground at their parties.
1: So this, this really became a national a goodwill movement here too. Just something that started as, you know, a generous, uh, uh, gesture from you actually turned into a national mo- movement. And, and that's what I think is so amazing, um, about, you know, your story about your, your action. And, you know, despite the humanitarian spirit behind, behind, you know, what you did in Operation Little Vittles, um, there were some real risks attached and, and dangers really associated with the uh, with the Berlin airlift. I understand you know thirty nine British and thirty one American pilots lost their lives flying through the three air corridors in and out of uh, Berlin. Tell us about some of the dangers you actually faced during your mission. Well,
4: I uh, early I well, I was there early during the airlift in, in uh, early July of. And 1948, and it began the 26th of June. And so it was a pretty, we were flying before we had radar. Later on, we had long-range radar to help separate the airplanes and uh, get them in uh, trail, and, and so it cut down on and, uh, air-to-air accidents. And on the ground, uh, we eventually had the ground-controlled approach radar talk us down right between the buildings. But I got over there before then and got caught in a big storm on the 12th of August, 1948, uh, over Berlin, and we couldn't get down as fast as the airplanes were plowing into the stack. And we, I was stacked at 10,000 feet over Wedding Beacon, and in the in the cloud, and uh, and came head on with another C-54. We just about tipped hit our, our prop tips. I could see the eyes of the pilot going the other way, and they were wide. And it they lost control. They totally lost control. The airplanes were coming in every five minutes and getting on the ground only about every 15 or 20 minutes. So it was chaos. The next day, General Tunner came in. was a similar situation. He sent everybody home, and they put in new procedures and probably saved a lot of lives, including my own. Just simply
5: amazing. One of the things that uh, 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 I want to ask you about, because you had, you had mentioned the german children and you also shared with how uh... how the american children assisted in the efforts stateside in terms of uh, the candy and helping with the parachutes and so forth and uh, it 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 speaks of a uh... of a, just kind of a different time about children having grown up in war and still finding ways to connect with each other american children with the german children i i i I think it goes to show that uh, even even in the ashes of war, there's still a lot of spirit between the people, and, and we know that that spirit continues with the German people today, as, as we found out when we uh, met you at uh, at the uh, Joint Services Air Show earlier right. this, this spring. And right. I just wanted you to kind of share with our audience, too, just about uh, just about the feelings of, of, of of the children on both sides, because it's 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 pretty remarkable that you know the children just want to relate to each other as children, and I think there's a lesson there for for adults too.
4: Well, you mentioned the groundswell, and that's certainly what it was, because the Weekly Reader, which was the little magazine, the little newspaper that was I mean, used uh, throughout all the schools in, in the states, picked this up right away because of the kids' effect. And the letters came pouring in, both from the States and from the kids' course in in Berlin. I got thousands and thousands of letters. So I had barracks bags in my room. And when I received, when the secretaries that would get the mails that helped sort it for me would get a letter that wanted a pen pal, we put it in a pen pal bag, and we'd have a pen pal bag in the States. And, And then we had two German secretaries that the base commander gave me to take care of the paperwork. And they'd, they'd pass them to each other. And uh, the, 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 great, the connection was incredible. And uh, the, the kids that, uh, that, that got the letters, now one little boy wrote me, Peter Zimmerman, says, uh, I'm not getting this stuff. I'm not running fast enough. And he sent me a map and where to drop it. And I kept missing him. So he said, hey, he said, "You're a pilot." He said, "I gave you a map. I just to win the war anyway." So I took a big package of gum and candy, Berlin, and mailed to him the Berlin mail. He needed shoes, so he took him some shoes. Well, that young man wanted to be adopted, and he was adopted by a family in Palm, Pennsylvania. I lost track of him about 20 years ago, but that—that's the kind of connection we had from the Weekly Reader connection to the kids that want to be pen pals. It was uh, in- incredible. The uh, One lady in New York in Long Island sent me three parachutes with her name on it. And uh, that was before we got a- all the heavy stuff from, from Chickadee. And I dropped the three parachutes, and she got letters from two of the three. And when I went back to be commander of Temple Off for those two sticks of gum in 1948, I went back to be the commander of Temple Off in Berlin for four years in 1970. And she came over from New York, and we met, traced down those two kids that wrote her a letter uh. in, in 1948. And the rewards of the children is just just incredible. And I, uh, I just came back from Anaheim from an airlift tanker, uh, Air Mobility Command, a great get together symposium work sessions, not a just a convention. And the, the man who's head of the catering for a Marriott hotel. In uh, in Anaheim, Peter was a boy in Berlin and involved in this stuff, and we were on a, an airlift panel with, you know, there's, today the airplane and the airlift is making these connections with kids all over the world now. Air Mobility Command launches an airplane every 90 seconds somewhere in, in the United States. And the symbol of hope to people under earthquake or to Sony or... or or floods, or, or whatever, or through war, these airplanes that are launched every 90 seconds with that American flag on the tail is a symbol of hope. It's a hope for their survival, hope for the future, just like the airplanes coming into the Berlin and the Berlin Airlift.
1: Mm, well, Colonel, you certainly are a, a symbol of, of hope and humanity. Uh- um, which is favorite people, and, and I'm so glad we were having an opportunity to talk to you again. I um, wanted to ask you, you know, in 1970, I believe, you commanded Tempelhof, and the airport um, and Tegel airports are giving way to new Berlin-Brandenburg airport within the next few years, and with so much of your life tied to the airbase at Tempelhof, how do you feel about the old place kind of being decommissioned?
4: I feel like a little bit of be died. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, are, are, are they are they planning? I hope to to honor you in some way at the new airport for your humanitarian spirit.
4: Well, oh, I, I don't know about that. I, I'm not concerned with that. I, I, uh, they had me come to Berlin in February last year, and I laid out the the questions of, of, of I say I'd like to know more why, and they said well it's money, and I said well. How much is it going to... See, they can't tear down the building. That's the protected uh, historical site. Mm-hmm. So how much is it going to cost to keep the building up without the airport running? Well, it's going to cost them about the same thing, and they won't have any any uh, money coming in from the uh, regional carriers that the Temple Office so apt to do. They they went they, If they take close Tegel, which they say they will, in Temple off, they, they'll go from six runways and the new one, in in Berlin, the two, and that that's that's going to be a disaster. That just uh, it's just too bad. And but if that's there, we we can't tell them how to run their business. Feel a bit very bad about it.
1: Uh, mm, yeah, indeed. You know, you you. Um, I think we'll start a, a lobbying campaign at least oh, okay. to to make sure that you're honored <laughs> properly.
4: So I, I said, to them, I said, hey, look, Tempelhof is the Statue of Liberty to you to to Berlin, just like. French gave us the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. it's full of liberty not only for West Berlin but it, it saved west uh, West Germany from communist domination mm-hmm. and and it changed the post-war history it, it gave them their freedom and but it I don't know it it, it was it's just too bad where we, we I've written uh, in fact the Morgan post uh, published a, a long letter that I sent uh, just a couple of months ago, and but uh, and then there's a, oh my gosh, there's over, you know, there's more of the Berliners want to keep it than not. We had a, a referendum and they needed 600,000 votes to put it to a, a total vote, and that they got 507,000. That uh, but just fell just a little bit short of getting on the ballot. Oh my
1: goodness. Oh, well, Colonel, we uh you know, we 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 appreciate you sharing with us today and you know, certainly we um, we we hope that our listening audience members that, that are listening to this broadcast will um you know, be able to to kind of capture um, your interest in building bridges and because you know, that's what we're here for. We're here to to promote global citizenship and cross-cultural understanding. And you certainly did that many many years ago. And I know you made a promise to us. The next time we saw you, you would teach us how to throw candy from a plane because it's all in the wrist, I understand. And I think the German ambassador got the hang of it when Pastor, you were with I, him earlier this year. <laughs> Chariot,
4: Chariot, In fact, he marched with us down Fifth Avenue in. In, this, this, uh, in September, for the von Steuben parade, Lorraine and I and, and two others were grand marshals, and we marched down Fifth Avenue with that great ambassador, the two parachutes out of her airplane at Andrews Air Force Base. Well, this is a special day, and, and not, as you say, it's expanded not just for World War I, but to me it goes back to Nathan Hale and Patrick Henry, and all those patriots have, have since given their lives for our freedom from that time to now because they have given us water from wells we haven't dug and we warm ourselves by fires that we haven't built. Our skies are blue, one marked by the contrails of enemy aircraft and our fields of grain this day are marked by, not, yep. not marked by, by tank uh, treads of enemy tanks and our harbors harbor friendly ships. And today at this moment, today's patriots, that uh, we are protecting freedom of, of of others who desire it so much in our own, are in harm's way in our behalf. And I'm grateful that the special days dedicated to all those patriots gone before and those today in our behalf.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, as as we are. Colonel, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much for joining us for today's show. If you want more of World Footprints Radio, including our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the latest breaking travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, we've gone mobile, so sign up for our mobile apps and subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on your favorite social network. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
3: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio.
0: This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.